Let's all take our Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4 tonight. Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll be looking at the first six verses this evening. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you uh, that you walk according, or worthy, excuse me, of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with suffering, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It says, verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. Let's bow to the Lord in prayer. Brother Calvin, would you mind those some prayer, please? Amen. Amen. Tonight we're talking about walking in unity. And as I mentioned in the last message, uh, we left the first division of the book of Ephesians that deals with doctrine, and uh, we moved over to that second division dealing with application. I want you to notice that the first line uh, of, of verse 1 of chapter 4 uh, does not indicate what they were to believe, but what they were to do on the basis of their faith. And if you look at the first line, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you do what? Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. So Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 deals with our wealth in Christ. If you remember chapter, uh, chapter 1 and verse 3 uh, says that we have all these spiritual blessings uh, in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So those first three chapters deal with our wealth in Christ. The last three chapters deal with our walk in Christ. And so that's where we begin looking tonight as we look at chapter 4. Uh, we're going to start looking at this walk uh, with the Lord and the way that we're supposed to be living out the faith and the doctrines uh, in which we believe. Now, if the church was ever to fulfill its purpose there in the city of Ephesus, uh, there would need to be unity in that church. Because if a building, or if, excuse me, if a church, I don't know where the word building from, if a church is not unified, if any group of people are not working together, if a nation is not unified, they are going to, to fall apart, they are going to fall by the wayside, there's going to be division, and they'll eventually begin fighting and working against one another, rather than serving and working with one another, and that's very true even of our church itself, that if we're not in unity, if we are in disunity, if we're in disagreement with one another, if, uh, if we're constantly looking uh, each person to their own things and not upon the things of others. If we don't have the common goal of uh, serving Christ and uh, being conformed to His image and carrying out His mission in the world, then of course we're going to be a divided church and God's not going to be able to accomplish through us all that He would desire uh, to accomplish in, in our church and in this community. And the same was true of them back then in Ephesus as well, that if they were to fulfill the purpose, then there had to be unity in that church. So the first verse tells us uh, that we are to walk. That's what verse 1 says. The next three chapters that we'll be reading are going to tell us how we are to walk. So we know that we're to be walking with Christ. 
Then we're going to look at all the commandments that teach us how to walk uh, in Christ. And so the first way that we must learn to walk is in unity with one another. And I love the fact, and it actually fits into a lot of what we're going to be talking about tonight. But I love the fact that Paul also, in another letter, likened the church into the body of Christ. and talked about all the different members uh, of that body. And the, we don't you really talk about members today. We talk about body parts. But, uh, you know, over there in, in the book of, uh, in, in one of the Corinthians, he talks about, you know, the eyes and the arms and the hands and the feet and, uh, and all those other things, the, the nose. And those are all different parts of the body. But if that body is ever going to fulfill its purpose or ever going to accomplish anything, then all those parts have to be in agreement and they have to be working with one another. And so if one foot's trying to go one way, the other uh, is trying to go another, uh, your, uh, your, your hands are doing other things, what, if, there's, uh, if there's not unity, then it just doesn't make sense and nothing is going to be done and uh, it's just going to look like a fit, right? I wonder how many churches is like a fit is going on, you know, just just uh, floundering around and uh, nothing's really getting done uh, except for uh, them existing and and having a meeting every week. And uh, and, and that's not where I want our church to be. Uh, We need to be in unity. We need to be in singleness of thought and mind and heart and focus. And uh, we need to be all working towards the same thing. Now, listen, we're not all the same people. We're not all made the same way. We're not all from the same school of thought or uh, school of philosophy. And there are going to be those differences, but we can work together and we can be unified in our efforts to, uh, to reach the world uh, with the gospel. And that's what we need to do. And, uh, and so I want us to talk about unity and, and walking in unity. There's three things I want to look at tonight from these verses. And the first thing is unity through humility. That's very important. Unity through humility. As a matter of fact, we're going to spend more time on this than we are on anything else. Because I think that is the single most important thing when it comes to true unity in any group of people is if you're going to be unified, there has to be humility uh, in the people that you're trying to unify. One of the greatest hindrances to church movement and growth uh, is individualism in the church. And I want you to look at what it says in verse 2. He says, with all lowliness... And meekness with long suffering. And then look at the last phrase: forbearing one another in what? In love. We have uh, several words here. We have the word lowliness. We have the word meekness. We have the word long suffering. And then we have forbearing one another as well. And all that's wrapped up in that last word, love. And uh, you know, it's important to look at what all these mean. Uh, forbearing, of course, is. Or lowliness, excuse me, is that uh, that humility of mind, you know, uh, having a, a proper assessment of who we are and what we are and what our importance and, and uh, how important our own opinions and ideas are. Some of us think very highly of those things. Some of us not so much. And, and so we're to have lowliness of mind. But it also talks about meekness. And I love that word meekness because really what meekness means is I have the power to claim my own rights and I have the power to do this or do that, but I'm keeping that power under God's control. And that's really what meekness is. And any one of us, if we wanted to get rowdy, we could do it, couldn't we? Yes, sir. But meekness says that even though I have the ability to do that, 
I'm not going to enact that ability. I, I'm going to keep that under God's control. And that's what meekness has to do with. Um, I, I heard this illustration. I've used it before. I think when we're going over the, uh, you know, the, uh, what was the Beatitudes, we talked about meekness there. But meekness, I, I love this illustration. I think Billy Graham was the one that came up with this or, or introduced it to everybody. Um, but he talked about meekness was a horse having all the strength and all the power to run and, and uh, to run freely and to do its own thing, but then halting or turning at the least uh, you know, resistance or pull from the master's hands. And, you know, and, and so the horse has so much more strength and power than uh, the one that's riding on it. But even with all that raw power and all that raw ability and speed and so forth, that at the slightest touch of the master's hand and slightest leadership that he's willing to stop or to turn or to slow down or whatever the command is. And that's really what meekness is. It's it's power under control. But more specifically, meekness is power under God's control for a Christian. He talks about long-suffering, which is being patient and, you know, and, and bearing long with another person, which also is carried out in the idea of forbearance, as we see in, uh, in number two. But it's all wrapped up in that last word, which is love. Again, one of the greatest hindrances, as we said, to, uh, to church movement and, uh, and accomplishing God's will in the community is that issue of us being individuals and uh, working as individuals in the church. This is one of the concepts, I believe, uh, that has been lost to modern churches and theology is that we are not working as individuals, but that there is a corporate body here that is interdependent upon one another. That I am not an independent Christian that happens to be a member of and go to Calvary Baptist Church. And I've got my family and I've got my thing that I do. But I am part of a group, a church, an assembly uh, that is covenant together and working together so that no choice that I make as an individual should have any kind of resistance towards the, uh, the betterment and the movement of this church body as a whole. We have lost that. We have become individuals and everything is about me and everything is about my individuality. And uh, we've really lost that sense of community and that sense of, uh, of, of corporate, uh, what it means to, to be a part of uh, a unified church. Our culture has grown more and more humanistic. And as that has happened, we find that the people of our culture have become laser focused on self. And I really think that if you go to other societies and, and other cultures, you're going to find that there are some that very are very humanistic as well. There are some that are very much about uh, you know identity, and they're very much about in, individuality and, and self-focused, things like that. But there are cultures and there are communities that are all about family. And not one person in that family is going to do something that would hurt or distress the other people of that family. Now, that's really... What we see a big difference and a huge difference is in our country is that we don't really have that sense of loyalty to to the group and loyalty to the family. You see it. It it is there every once in a while, but we're all individuals. And if the family doesn't do or think what I think or like, then we're willing to pull away and uh, and, and kind of go our own separate ways. You know, I, I think that's terrible. Uh, but we also see it as a as a nation as a whole. And uh, you know, I, I'm not. I don't want to get political or anything up here. But I'm really I'm concerned about our nation because I see the division that's going on in our nation. Amen. Amen. We're not a united nation right now, 
And uh, there's so much division. There's so many, because what we're all doing is we're all seeking and, and focused on our own ways and our own thoughts and, uh, and the individuality when we need to be looking at ourselves as a nation and what's best for our nation and what's best for the people of our nation. Everything that happens is viewed in light of how it affects me. Do you see this going on in our country? In our families? I want us to take a look at uh, two terms that I've already mentioned. The first one is the term humanism. And humanism is a variety of ethical theory and practice that emphasizes reason, scientific inquiry, and human fulfillment in the natural world and often rejects the importance and the belief of God. In other words, we are elevated, God is kind of put to the side, and everything is about us. Have y'all seen that in our society? And I believe that that has led to another really important or really tragic situation, and that is individualism, which is the pursuit of individual rather than common or collective interest. Or it's the belief that all action should be for the benefit of the individual, not for society as a whole. And so in other words, I want to do what's right for me. I as an individual, I want to find out what's best for me. I want to know what's, what's going to affect me or how it's going to affect me. And I am the most important thing in this world. In other words, there is an axis upon which this earth spins. Its name is Anthony Phillips. <laughs> Anybody else view life that way? <laughs> it all revolves around me. I don't know if y'all ever uh, watched this, and I'm not promoting movies or anything like that. But uh, there was a movie back when I was a kid called The Truman Show. Anybody ever watch that? Yes. And the whole movie was about this one guy um, who was the star of a television show. But what he didn't know is that uh, he thought it was real life. And everything in that show all revolved around him. It was all focused on him. The camera was always on him. And so the entire world, his entire world, was all laser focused upon him and things like that. And of course, he, he got to discover that there is a bigger world up there and he's not really the center of it. But uh, I think many of us are living in our own little private Truman show we're thinking the whole world revolves around us. You want to know one of the things that really convinces me of this? Is the fact that all the things, the terrible things that are going on in America, and I keep hearing people say, well, the end must be near now because of all the stuff that's going on in America. But you know what? In my Bible, I don't see anything about America. Anybody notice that? Not mentioned once. And we say, you know, we're, we're looking at Obama. We're not, but there are people who are pointing to Obama as being the Antichrist and yada, 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 and trying to fit everything into America. Listen, really in the big scheme of things, America as a nation really doesn't matter as far as end time events go, as far as what we're able to see. But, but that's the thing is we Americans think that the whole world revolves around us, that we are the center of the universe and uh, we're God's gift to humanity. And, uh, and, and, you know, there's just this, this, such this idea of individualism that we find in our culture. Most of us have had these philosophies spoon-fed to us our whole lives. You know, we've been told to express yourself. Does that make anybody else sick? <laughs> but you need to be able to express yourself and, you know, and 
I'm not very good at, ex- at expressing myself, I don't guess. And I guess I need to work on that a little bit better because that's what's really important is my ability to, to express myself. Maybe I'll take up interpretive dance. I don't know. There you go. You ever heard that everyone is entitled to their own opinion? So it doesn't matter what this person thinks. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks. You've got your opinion and that's all that matters and you're entitled to it. Self. There's this thing that's going around. It's not new, but it's called relative truth. You know what relative truth is? We've talked about that. I talk about it a lot, I guess. But relative truth means that there's really no absolute truth. That truth is whatever you decide truth is. And so whatever is true for you, whatever you decide is true for you, that's what's right, and nobody is allowed to question that. Relative truth. And this is what said, you do what is right in your heart, and that will be the right thing to do. I've heard, I, I mean, I can't even count. I don't have enough toes and fingers to count how many times I've heard that. I don't think we have enough toes and fingers in this room to count how many times I've heard that. And I've been told that over and over and over and over again. Get to a big decision and I'll talk to somebody for counsel. You know what their their advice is? You do what is right in your heart. The Bible says the heart is wicked, deceitful above all else. Who can know it? There you go. And I think we need to be very careful following our own hearts. You know, the people in the book of Judges did that. Um, they became a nation that didn't know God or, or the works of God. And by the very end, they got so ungodly and so far away from God. It says, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And it wasn't said to their glory. It was said to their demise and their dishonor. But that's what we've been taught and told our whole lives is that what I think is what's really important. And if you disagree with me, then you're wrong, I'm right. Now, how does that work? Don't, aren't they entitled to have their own opinion as well? If truth is relative, it's got uh, to be right for everybody. Then. Well, it doesn't matter, but the fact is, is that you know, this is what we're being told. We talk about my rights. It's my right to do this or to have that or to want this. It's, uh, it's my preferences are the most important thing. It's what I want and what I like. It's my mouth. Anybody ever said or it's been said to you, God gave me a mouth and I'm going to use it. Anybody ever said that? Be very careful how you use that mouth. Because if what you say is to the hurt or destruction of other people, you're going to have to answer for that. You don't get to stand before God and say, well, you gave me a mouth and I just decided to use it how I wanted to. He may smack that mouth off of you. I don't know how it's going to work. It's my life. And here's one we hear a lot. It's my choice. It's all about me. Self-glorification, self-edification. We look at someone with a lot of problems and what we say is they just don't have enough self-esteem. So we need to raise their esteem of themselves and what they think of themselves. And when they think better of themselves or more highly of themselves, then they'll be better off. See, but it's all in light of me and what I want and what I think and what's best for me or what I think is best for me. 
And unfortunately, the point that I'm getting to is that this worldview has infiltrated God's churches as well. You know, I, I hear this from either from people in our church or from people in other churches, and, and a lot of times just from other churches, is uh, the sermons don't feed me, or the pastor doesn't call me, or the lessons don't speak to me. I don't feel like I'm getting what I need out of that church. Or that church doesn't really have the things that I'm looking for. Or it's not doing what I want, so I'm going to leave it. There's a lot of eyes in that sentence, right? They don't provide the music that I want. They don't have the service like I like it. They don't have the activities that I want to do or that I like. Or on the flip side of that, this church offers more things for me, and so I do like it. But where's the focus? Absolutely. It's all me. And what's best for me? I think this is true of most, of most of us. I read the Bible to see what it says to me. Or what it says about me or for me. My focus is always on what God's plan for my life is. And I hear people just distress because they just don't know what is God's will for my life. And they're looking at themselves as individuals. I am the separate person. Uh, I am distinct from the rest of the church. I'm distinct from the rest of the kingdom. And uh, I am living in my own little island over here. And I want to know, God, what is your will for my life? I want you to know that you are not going to find your will, God's will for your life, apart from what His will is for the rest of the church and for the rest of what He's doing here on earth. Amen. Amen. You don't have some little island that you're operating on where God's just going to tell you what He wants you to do over here and not be connected with what He's already doing around you. Amen. We've got to get this focus off of self. We've got to put it back in on what God's doing and on God and on the church and on the community and others. And we've got to move away from this individualism in the church. I challenge you, how many of you have a smartphone? Some of you are lying. I'm so dumb, I don't know I have one. How many of you have a timer or, or some kind of recorder at home? All right? What I want you to do is I want you to record the next prayer that you say. Pray it out loud. Get off by yourself somewhere or you'll just feel weird. But record the next prayer that you say. Most of you have a recorder right here on this phone. And I want you to go back and listen to that recording. Just pray normally. And then I want you to count all the times that the word I, me, or myself, or my is mentioned in that prayer. And I almost dare to say that the majority of what we're praying and how we're praying is focused on us. What we want and what's best for me. We are self-centered, self-focused people. And I want you to know it destroys a church. And it destroys the function of a church, the purpose of a church. Because this church is not here for you. This church is here to fulfill the purpose and the calling of God. And we have to do that together. So there is no I. There is no me it's us. As a matter of fact, I love what happened when the disciple says, Lord, teach us to pray. Right. And when he gave the model prayer, you know what he said? He didn't say, my father. He, said, he didn't say pray like this. My father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Give me all the stuff I want and my will be. This is what he said. He said, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on heaven as it is in earth. Give us 
this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as who? We forgive those who trespass against us. Thine be the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You see, there was no I or me in that prayer. It was all us. It was all we. It was community-centered and focused. And that was the way Jesus taught them to pray. That's the way we need to be praying today. Our prayers don't need to be centered on us and what God given us the food that we need. We need to be praying for one another and praying collectively uh, for us as a church and as a body. And of course, for the for the whole kingdom uh, work to be done uh, in earth as it is in heaven. We must pray that God would begin to reform our minds to be outwardly and corporately focused. And when I say corporately, I mean for us together as a group in harmony uh, with one another. The reforming of the mind begins, as we look at verse 2, begins with humility. And that's what we see in the first part of that verse, with all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering. Everything we've considered so far has been a problem with pride. As Christians, we must ask God to produce humility in our hearts. And humility in the Bible is more than how we estimate ourselves. I'm not saying we need to have a lower view of ourselves or we need to have a low self-esteem. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying we need to forget about self or, or anything like that. You know, self is important. You need to love yourself. You need to take care of yourself. But humility is not just how we esteem ourselves, but it's how we prioritize ourselves. Paul said that although we need to have a right estimation of self, we also need to fall in the right priority as well. And here's how it goes. God, others, me. And I need to set my mind on things of others over the things of self. I need to make sure that my family's needs are taken care of, that other other people are taken care of before I start looking at what I need and what I want. Completely different mindset. And the process of renewing our minds also requires patience as well. As we look at the end of verse 2, it talks about uh, forbearing one another in love. And it has that word long-suffering. We, uh, we need to have patience with one another. I want to ask you this tonight. Does anyone that you know just really grate on your nerves? Is it your pastor? You can tell me. It's okay. Send, send in a private message. Does anyone you know just really grate on your nerves? Does anybody know someone whose personality has a train wreck with their personality every time they get together? I mean, it happens, don't it? And it's going to happen. But there is a way to deal with them, and verse 2 tells us that, where to deal with them with long-sufferingness and with forbearance. But really, it's all wrapped up in that last word as we said before. We deal with them in love. Meaning that even if our personalities don't get along, even if your ways and your traits aren't the same as mine, and naturally we would clash together, my love for you should overshadow and override whatever it is that's going on between us. And that's really what this verse says. That there needs to, we have unity because we're able to love one another despite our differences. I want us to look at the, the next thing. We won't spend as much time on these next two, but we have unity through the Spirit as we look at verse 3. It says, 
endeavoring, excuse me, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, the only way that a church of so many ethnicities and backgrounds and personalities is ever going to find unity and peace is through the Spirit of God. And that's so important for us to understand because we can't just try to play nice with each other. If we're going to find unity, it means that each and every one of us have to learn what it means to be walking in the Spirit of God. Because if we're not walking in the Spirit of God, when you get on my nerves, I'm going to get mad. I'm going to act out in the flesh every single time. But if I'm going to be long-suffering, and if I'm going to be forbearing with you, if I'm going to have humility and meekness in my life towards other people, and if I'm going to be outwardly focused rather than inwardly focused, then it's going to have to be through the Spirit of God working in my life. And listen, when we have a church where all the individuals of that church are walking in the Spirit of God, that church is going to be in unity, even though they may still have differences. You see, the truth is, is that I am an individual, just as you are. But when each of us, regardless of our differences, begins to conform to the same Christ through the work of the same Holy Spirit, then unity is possible. And one thing that I think is important to point out is uh, in the words of Ravi Zacharias, he said, unity does not have to be uniformity. And I want to say, you're crazy if you think that all of us somehow are all going to get the same minds, we're all, going to have, we're all going to magically get the same likes, we're all going to want the same things and like the same things and enjoy the same things and want to do the same things, or even all have the same opinions. Now, does anybody foresee that in our near future? See, that's uniformity. That's where we all become the same. That's not going to happen, but it doesn't have to happen. Because we can have unity... We could still have differences. We could still have strengths and weaknesses and so on and so forth. We could still even have sometimes differing opinions, but still yet be in unity with one another. In other words, I can disagree with what you think. I can disagree with what you feel. I can even be a disagreement with the way that you do things and still work in unity with you. But that's only done through the Spirit of God working in us. Can't do that on our own. What that means is that to an extent we can all embrace our individuality and still be unified as a church. And that comes back all to that picture of the body of Christ. That every member of a body, you look at your body, and all those apart from one another, they're going to look different, they're going to act different, they're going to function differently, they have different purposes and different jobs, but when they're all pulled together and unified by a spirit, they're able to move and breathe and work towards a common goal and purpose, even though there's differences in, that, in those body parts. Same is true with us as a church. We're going to look different, we're going to act different, God has made us differently. But we can embrace our individuality, we can embrace our differences, and still be working in unity as the body of Christ. Surrendering as a church to the Spirit of God is the only way that this can take place. And that leads to the last thing, we'll be very quick here, and that is unity through the Lord, as we read in verses 4 through 6. Now, Paul goes on to remind us here in an arrangement of climaxing statements that Though there may be many things that make us different, 
that there are many things that unify us. And, and let me say this. If we were to go around and look at all the things that make us different in this room, and look at all the personalities and all the people, and we could probably identify a lot of things that are going to be hard for us to harmonize. Right? Well, what Paul says is that there may be differences. There are a lot of things that we do have in common. And that's what we need to find, and that's what we need to focus on, and it's, that's the starting point that we need to be working from. And here it is. Here's our commonality, verses 4 through 7. He says, there is one body. I believe it's talking about the body of Christ, the church. There is one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. He says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. You see, we all share the same salvation. Regardless of our differences, we're all saying the same exact way. Amen. We're all part of the same church. We all receive the same kind of baptism. We all have the same Holy Spirit living within us. We all serve the same Lord. We're all sons of the same Heavenly Father. Amen. I've got three children. And one adopted one that I claim. She doesn't claim me, but I claim her. And one adopted one. And they are all as different as night and day. Couldn't be any, you know, any different from one another. But they all have the same father. They all have the same, you know, they all have the same family. And the same is true for us that there may be some of us that couldn't be any different from one another. We all have the same heavenly father. We're all saved by the same blood. We're all bought by the same Christ. And we need to find commonality there. We're all commissioned with the same commission. And those are the things we need to be focusing on. We can, we can zone in on all the things that are different about us. But we need to look at what is common about us. And what purpose is common about us. We need to be working together to fulfill that. Amen. You may have different opinions. You may like different music. You may have different thoughts on this or that. You may have different likes or dislikes or things you enjoy doing or you may have different gifts for ministry and so on and so forth when we pull all of that together under the the idea that there is one head of the church and none of us are it Jesus Christ and we're all working and functioning under that head and under that spirit and under the authority of one father with the ministry and mission and goal that he has given us and we begin working towards that there can be unity in the church. We can pray in unity. We can witness in, uni- in unity. And we can work as a church in unity. And that's what we need to pray that God would help us to do.